0: Log Talk
1: Radio.
0: You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, September 29, 2015, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Just to remind you, Mercury is retrograde until October the 9th. And if you're not familiar with that, you can do an Internet search about it or you can look on our site on the events page. It's not a good time to start something new or launch a new project, but it's great for contemplation and spiritual reflection, although your technology devices may act up a little bit. So our very special guest this evening is Brant Courtright, Ph.D., He's the author of the best-selling book, The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life. He's also a brain health coach and a professor of psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. As a licensed clinical psychologist, he has a private practice in San Francisco that focuses on an integral holistic and neuroscience-informed approach to brain health and depth psychotherapy. He specializes in depression, stress and anxiety, career and meaning, as well as relationship and intimacy issues. He has authored two previous books, Integral Psychology and Psychotherapy and Spirit, both published by SUNY Press. He speaks and gives workshops around the U.S., Europe, and Asia. You can visit his personal website, which is brantcourtright.com, and that's B-R-A-N-T, Brant Courtright is C-O-R-T-R-I-G-H-T.com, or the website for the book, neurogenesisdiet.com. At the top of the show, it's the Starseed News with Anastasia, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. We'd like to thank Fiona and Vanya for hosting the Switchboard this evening. And I would also like to mention that because we will be leaving for Arkansas next week, um, our next broadcast won't be until um, October 27th, I believe. So we'll be off on assignment for three weeks. So give you some time to catch up on the archive shows. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com. And thanks go to Tammy as always for her dedication to the forum. You can download our show podcasts on iTunes or right from our Blog Talk Radio episode page. Just look for the cloud with an arrow icon. If you'd like to support our show, we appreciate it. Just click follow on our page here at Blog Talk and you'll get our weekly show notice. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com dot com is eight 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 one zero eight eight one. The Stage 1 starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart. And the Stage 2 session is a one on one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. And remote healing sessions for people and pets are also available with Tammy. If you have a birthday coming up, don't miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solo return timing. And if you want an interpretation of that chart, please allow two or three months ahead of time to make sure that you get booked before your birthday. So first of all, this evening, I am going to bring Anastasia on for the Starseed News. Hi, Anastasia.
2: Hello, Arielle. Good evening, Starseed listeners, Lavendar, everybody. It's good to be with you. We have a lot of news this week, just a tremendous amount going on. I couldn't have begun to cover it all, so I guess I better get busy. Well, we've had a lot of flares from the sun. Uh, Sunspot AR2422 is crackling with solar flares. The enormous active region on our sun has produced more than six M flares in the past 24 hours, including an intense 7.6 flare that ionized the top of the Earth's atmosphere and did cause a brief low-frequency radio blackout over South America and the Atlantic Ocean. Similar blackouts are occurring every few hours today as the flare activity continues. The frequencies that are most affected are below 10 megahertz, and despite this high solar activity, there have been no major coronal mass ejections now ar twenty four twenty two has an unstable beta get beta gamma delta, excuse me, magnetic field that could erupt again at any moment, but NOAA forecasters estimate a 70% chance of additional M-class solar flares and a 25% chance of X-flares during the next 24 hours. Well, everybody, this was a dark and beautiful lunar eclipse. I hope most of you got to see it. On Sunday night, the 27th, the supermoon passed through the shadow of Earth, producing a total lunar eclipse visible from the Americas, Europe, Africa, and parts of Asia. I was out there with my camera trying to get pictures. And I have to confess with sort of a chuckle, I am not a professional photographer. I got some beautiful orange dots. But anyway, and I can <laughs> concur that
1: <laughs>
2: that it was one of the darkest lunar eclipses ever seen. Other experts have, uh, I should say the experts, I'm not an expert, have noted that. They say this is compared to recent years. And they wonder what's caused the change. Well, they say that Earth's atmosphere or stratosphere is no longer clean of volcanic ash. And lingering aerosols from the explosion of volcanoes, and they mentioned kalbuko in particular, may be to blame for that excess darkening and volcanic activity around the planet has also produced colorful sunsets around the southern hemisphere for months there has recently been an increase in purple and yellow sunsets in colorado and elsewhere so they think that's what made the super moon super dark but it was really really beautiful and there won't be another one until 2035 and oh all of you listening to this unless you're oh under 25 years old, don't add up how old you'll be in 2035.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: if you missed it, for some of you, it's just too darn late. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, upcoming near-Earth asteroids are on in the news tonight. Um, tomorrow, we have three incoming. One of them is pretty close. 2015 SZ2 is going to come within 1.3 lunar distances. 36 meters wide we have two more at the distance of 14.6 and 14.3 and incidentally just a few days ago one passed by at 0.7 lunar distance so we have a lot of activity in the sky right now in fact one passed by today um, it was 10.3 lunar distance so a lot going on four in 24 hours well, uh, Mars has been in the news. I'm sure most of you have watched at least I certainly hope you have. We get NASA TV, and I'll tell you, it was very fascinating on their little uh, press release, their media conference. Well, new findings from NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, or MRO for short, provide the strongest evidence yet that liquid water flows intermittently on Mars. It took multiple spacecraft over several years to solve the mystery, and NASA says that now we know there is liquid water on the surface of this desert planet. Mm, That seems like an oxymoron. (laughs) Water and desert. But anyway, they have discovered it. Uh, They say that "Quote: It seems that the more we study Mars, the more we learn how life could be supported and where there are resources to support life in the future. They're really excited about this. Now, that's not all that's going on on Mars, because India, its first ever Mars probe, is now one year into its historic mission, and that's still going strong. It's called the MOM spacecraft, uh, spacecraft, short for Mars Orbiter Mission, and it got there on the Red Planet in last year, uh, September, uh, this month of 2014, just two days after NASA's Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Probe, called MAVEN, reached orbit. And our probe is striving to see what is causing uh, Mars' atmosphere to evaporate. That's what the MAVEN is all about. Well, the MOM, which is the spacecraft from India, is the first interplanetary probe that India has ever launched. And MOM and MAVEN together are not the only operational spacecraft orbiting the Red Planet. I've mentioned this on previous shows. We can include NASA's Mars Odyssey, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and the European Space Agency's Mars Express Probe. And two NASA rovers are also currently uh, exploring the Martian surface. One's called Opportunity that landed in 2004, and Curiosity, which survived that risky touchdown in August of 2012. That is an awful lot of activity, on the Martian planet. Just a lot going on. They must be very eager to uh, dig into that and see if it's habitable or can be habitable. In their news conference, which I watched, they actually discussed the possibility of using water and chemicals in the Martian atmosphere to create um, oxygen atmosphere and so on. So it's fascinating. They're really working on it. Well, here is a story uh, on the planet Earth front. Um, I feel like I should Uh, Share this with the Starseed listeners. It's somewhat sobering, but oh well. Um, This came from a Starseed uh, listener who uh, tipped us to this, and since then it has been uh, uh, published in other news sources as well. So it's opened wide. Um, It's about Los Angeles uh, basin and a nuclear secret that has been suddenly exposed Uh, uh, Tucked away in the hills above San Fernando and Simi Valleys, there was, at one time, a 2,800-acre laboratory that had a mission that was a mystery, a secret, to the thousands of people who lived in the shadow of this installation. It's a place that was called Area 4 of the Santa Susana Field Laboratory, or SSFL for short. And in this place, there was a secret collaboration between the U.S. government and private companies, to test the limits of nuclear power. Now, the United States government deliberately hid the worst nuclear disaster in U.S. history, according to experts in an in-depth investigation by um, a news station, NBC4 of Southern California. This is an NBC news station. Whistleblowers apparently have also come forward to expose this little-known catastrophe, which occurred north of Los Angeles in 1959 and leaked over 300 times the allowable amount of radiation into surrounding neighborhoods. And that contamination is now linked to up to 60% cancer increase among residents of the area, but apparently the government is still not acknowledging the mistake. Now, the Susanna, excuse me, Santa Susana Field Lab occupies, as I mentioned earlier, just under 3,000 acres in the terrain of the Simi Hills at the intersection of Simi Valley, and the West San Fernando Valley. I want to tell you what areas are affected. It overlooks Simi Valley to the north, Chatsworth, West Hills, and Canoga Park is to the east. Woodland Hills and Thousand Oaks are to the south, and Moore Park is to the west. Now, when the site was initially developed by North American Aviation, it was in a remote area, a uh, lot of ranching, property, and so forth, but uh, is now a growing part of the Los Angeles and Ventura counties. As you can well imagine, since the 1950s and early 60s, that area has exploded with population. Well, the secret test area was home to 10 experimental nuclear reactors, as well as the site of thousands of rocket energy and weapons tests. And Because corporate mergers and acquisitions occurred over the years, this facility has had several owners, It's also been owned or used by the United States government, and its nuclear activities at Area 4 were once supervised by the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, which later became the United States Department of Energy. Another section of that lab is actually owned by the government today and was used by NASA for rocket tests and scientific experiments. Well, here's the story. Witnesses have come forward. One of them was a health physicist, and he had a job to monitor radiation at the site. And during a long interview, he said he witnessed the release of radioactive materials from several of the site's reactors into the environment. He also witnessed the burning of radioactive waste at the field lab's burn pits. These were man-made lakes where waste was dumped and burned. And in 1959, high levels of radiation leaked from the sodium reactor experiment. Workers initiated a contamination cleanup, and they started and stopped the reactor for two weeks, but... In July of that year, the situation grew very dire as power surged in one of the nuclear reactors, and the employees couldn't shut it down. And another witness, who is a whistleblower, was present there. He said that the radiation in that building got so high it went off the scale, we were not able to contain the radiation that was leaking from the reactor. Uh, Apparently, the company blamed equipment failure, but they had a choice. They could let the reactor explode, or they would have to release the radiation into the atmosphere, which is what they did. And as NBC4 documents, I quote, this witness said that dangerous radiation was released for weeks and went whichever direction the wind was blowing. He says the large door in the reactor was opened so they could vent the radiation from inside the building. He also remembers that the exhaust stack of the reactor was opened could be released from inside the damaged reactor straight into the atmosphere. And all of this was kept secret. Now, if you live in this region, region you probably should be advised and you can read more at the website for KNBC4 Southern California. Experts, some of them are calling this the worst nuclear disaster in US history, equivalent to Chernobyl. Wow. And that is part of the truth telling that we're seeing going on in the world as some of these dark things get exposed, and there you go. Well, news around the world and at home. In Taiwan, they have been ravaged by a super typhoon. Let's see if I can pronounce it for you. DuJuan. It's been sweeping across northern Taiwan. It's displaced 12,000 people, cut electricity to about a half a million. More than 300 have been injured. In Taiwan, fi- flying debris was thrown about like paper, people said, with gusts of wind so strong they knocked people off their feet, tore up trees, and smashed windows with multiple landslides. Been pretty tough for them down there. Super typhoon. And the Ubenas volcano in Peru has erupted again. On Monday, it sent clouds of ash two and a half miles into the air. A body of heat, incidentally, was also observed inside the crater and the, of the active volcano. Authorities have issued an ash alert for towns and communities surrounding the volcano. Lots of earthquakes going on. We had a major earthquake that was reported by the USGS on September 28th. That was yesterday, following a series of tremors in South America. Today's uh, seismic activity, or yesterday's, excuse me, so far produced a 5.4 magnitude earthquake. It was uh, 32 miles northwest of a town in Argentina. But during the past 11 days, the adjoining countries of Argentina and Chile have experienced tremors measuring between 5.4 and 6.6. And also on Monday in Honduras, uh, just north of Argentina, by a few thousand miles, they experienced a 5.1 quake just 30 minutes before the Argentine quakes erupted. Or hit, I guess I should say. And in California, up in my neck of the woods, 3.9 magnitude earthquake struck the Redwood Valley yesterday, and was quickly followed by a 2.7 aftershock. Quake hit in the afternoon, aftershock hit a half hour later, and of course, it's a remote area. Then there were no immediate reports of injuries or damage. Well, you know, we've talked about birds in the wrong places. Um, It's happened again. Wrong place and wrong time. Uh, they found a yellow rumped warbler and a hooded oriole that were seen in Alaska for the very first time. Now, just three days after a mother and son uh, bird spotters uh, found a hooded oriole up in Juneau, two National Park Service people spotted a yellow throated warbler in Bartlett Cove, Alaska. Now, this is the first time these birds have been seen in Alaska. The typical habitat range for this species, or both these species, is in the southeast portion of North America, with summer ranges drifting up into the, drifting up, I might add during the summer up into the areas of Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. Winter ranges typically go as far south as Cuba and the Dominican Republic, so its arrival in Alaska at the onset of fall, beginning winter is quite startling. I hope the little birdies make it back. Yeah. Well, uh, according to the U.K. authorities, they're worried because they said that El Nino could cause a harsh winter in Europe. They're advising people to brace themselves for snowstorms and freezing temperatures because there's just increasing uh, concern that this El Nino in the Pacific will bring bitter winter to the U.K. and to northern Europe. And Australian meteorologists are warning that Britain is set to be battered by fierce snowstorms and frigid temperatures that could affect food stocks because this is the first El Nino cycle for five years and it's just kicking in. We'll have to wait and see. They're hmm. worried. They had a rough hmm. year last year. They have had. You know, actually, for all the talk <laughs> of global warming, Ariel, there have been incredible reports of early winters, snow. Ice, even now, I mean, in the month of September, winter's coming early all across Europe. It's it's pretty amazing. And like you say, it's in the first year. But, you know, we've talked about that before, that some people claim that we are entering a mini ice age. So we don't know. But off of Fiji, an earthquake measuring a magnitude of 5.1 happened yesterday. It was just a moderate-sized earthquake, and they say that that originated deep down when they're just monitoring the situation. But uh, in the Caribbean, we've had four earthquakes with magnitudes ranging from 3.8 to 4.5. It said that it rattled the Caribbean on Sunday, but there were no immediate reports of damages. Uh, and it is also said that there was a well, the 3.8, um, 3.8, 4.5, and another 3.8, and another 4-something. So that's about four, ranging in the high threes to the mid fours, that occurred in the Caribbean. And this is an interesting story. Mm. We had an earthquake in Chile uh, just a couple weeks back. Well, actually, it was the 16th of September. It was an 8.3 earthquake, pretty massive.
1: Well, scientists have
2: discovered that the Earth has moved four feet and seven inches after that earthquake. And that's something. They'd, they wow. found that from satellite images taken before and after this quake, and they analyzed it using something called synthetic radar aperture inferometry infrarometri- why do i try to say words about <laughs> i have to give you all a chuckle so anyway that's pretty impressive four feet and seven inches now this is a big planet and that 8.3 quake quake made it move wow talk about rocking the ground under our feet wow. and in northern nevada northwest nevada to be exact we've had a third earthquake in in uh... ten months USGS reports that a 4.7 magnitude quake hit the northwest corner of Nevada Saturday night, the third earthquake of this size to hit the region in the past 10 months. The USGS says the earthquake had its epicenter about 38 miles southeast of Lakeview, Oregon. There are no reports of damages, but just a week or two ago, well, on the 14th of September, they had a 4.7 that hit the Shelton National Wildlife Range, a refuge near the Oregon and California borders, so just a lot going on up there. And now an update about California's water crisis. This comes out of the Sacramento Bee. They're reporting that there's been a sudden and unexplained loss of water in the Lassen County Reservoir. A Pacific Gas and Electric Company official blamed four years of drought for last week's sudden loss of water in the Mountain Meadows Reservoir An accumulation of dead and rotting fish near Indian Old Dam, but local residents don't buy that. They say that the reservoir has been operating at below the minimum requirements since August, and what little water uh, remained on September 13th is now gone, leaving largemouth bass and the other fish in their uh, goners. Well, a water quality member, all he could say was something went haywire, but a PG&E spokesman said that an outlet valve at the dam has been continuously clogged, requiring maintenance as often as twice a day to release water downstream. Company officials consulted with the, quote, relevant agencies, end quote, and decided not to stop further flows out of the dam. Well, they're having a drought. They need water dreadfully, and somebody decided it was just too much effort to try to stop the water because I guess the valve kept getting plugged up two times a day, that's just too much of a hassle or just let it go so you know we've got faulty equipment we've got decisions not to stop flows we've got no attention to minimums we've got a whole bunch of things coming together in an overly challenged state for water it seems like the loss of a little bit is a serious problem but here Here again we go with some human error, bad decisions Mm mm-mm that. Well, more uh, UFO lights have been spotted in New Hampshire, everybody. Pretty amazing. You know, they say that during the last few years in New Hampshire, people have been seeing some pretty strange, unexplained things, including triangle-shaped flying objects and orbs that appear to dance in the sky. I know a lot of listeners out there who have heard, uh, seen this, listening to this show or will hear it later. I know a lot of you have seen these things, triangles and orbs. And just three days ago, more dancing light orbs were seen and photographed over the Steeplegate Mall in Concord, New Hampshire. Any of you live up there? Did you hear anything about it? This is out of a New Hampshire newspaper. But uh, this man that took these photos posted his sighting on Facebook. He put up there a video. His name is Mike Pitaro, P-I-T-T-A-R-O, if you want to check Facebook for that. He posted a three-minute video. There's some photos of it on the net pretty cool pictures now they claimed he and his wife were standing together so that they couldn't see these orbs with their naked eyes but when they looked through the camera they showed up and that really attracted my attention because i have to tell you that when i was filming the eclipse i couldn't see it with my naked eye but when i focused the camera on it it showed up beautifully which was a perfect demonstration to me of how much we don't see with our naked eyes so, you know, maybe a good way to look for UFOs is just turn on that camera and start scanning. This man, this uh, man that took the pictures, notified some of his friends. He spread the word around. And actually, a number of people caught them on their iPhones and their cell phones, and they, they uploaded that, too, to the net. And uh, so those iPhones can really get some uh, very interesting pictures. They have a great capability of um, uh picking up things they had suggested for people that were filming the eclipse that they could also use their iphones and then they gave all of this technical description of why iphones are so good and why one can get such a good image with them and apparently they're good for filming eclipses and ufos because this was uploaded to the internet from ufos and cell phones or from not from ufos but from cell phones So pretty cool that we have the ability to catch this stuff so quickly. Isn't that pretty cool? I mean, years ago nobody had cell phones with cameras in them, and uh, long years ago when I used to kind of do UFO hunting, I'd keep a uh, camera, a little brownie camera in my glove box. And, uh, you know, but not very many people did that, and sightings are happening everywhere all over the world, and now just about everybody has a camera. So, wow, we're getting some data on this stuff. Anyway... I kind of wandered off there a little bit, but it's a very interesting uh, sighting. Uh, Try to check that out. You can actually Google that, uh, uh, sightings in Concord, New Hampshire, UFO lights spotted. Google that and see what you find and take a look at those pictures. Very interesting. Well, all right, that's it for tonight's news, Ariel. And we're going to have a very wonderful guest. This sounds like an incredibly good show. We all want to know how to increase our brain function. This is going to be
0: Absolutely, it, it's something that everybody needs to know. But thank you, <clears throat> excuse me, thank you so much, Anastasia, for the Starseed News. A lot happening this week. So, with that, I'm going to bring Dr. Brent Courtwright online here. Just a moment. Okay. Hello, Dr.
3: Courtright. Uh, Welcome hi. To the- oh.
0: I'm gonna get Thank Lavendar you. here as well. Let me get your mic open. This uh software is acting a little weird tonight. Okay, hey Lavendar, you're on.
3: Well, hello, and I'm so glad that we have you on tonight, Doctor, because your book is amazing. I've been reading on it. So let's hear a little bit about you and, and how you came across this term neurogenesis.
4: Okay. Well, I'm a psychology professor and I've been interested in consciousness my whole life. Um, Really putting together psychology with consciousness research and also spirituality. Um, And that really led me to the brain. And there's been more and more research now looking at brain imaging Looking at how the brain processes information um, and even how such things as meditation and prayer affect the brain um, and that wasn 't the case up until very recently it's been neuroscience has been a very materialistic science that reduces everything to neurotransmitters and synaptic connections and and finally, there has been some neuroscientists that have really been open to looking at not only spiritual practice, but also consciousness. And so, I was led into it through that, that everything we experience, we experience through the brain. So, in looking at this, looking at um, how we can have the best quality brain, it led me into these new discoveries around neurogenesis. Now, neurogenesis means the production of new brain cells, the genesis of new neurons. And it used to be believed up until the late 1990s, it was considered gospel, that the brain stopped growing new neurons in our early 20s. And after that, it was just one slow slide into decrepitude. Um, But then in the 1990s, late 1990s, they discovered no, actually the brain makes new brain cells throughout our entire life. Now, for a while they didn't know what to make of that. I thought, okay, well that's interesting, but they didn't quite know the significance of it until just a few years ago. And it's become clear now that a low rate of neurogenesis that is, a low rate at which our brain makes new brain cells, is associated with memory problems, with cognitive decline, with anxiety, with stress, with depression, and even lowered immunity. And the opposite, a high rate of neurogenesis, that is, a high rate at which our brain is making new brain cells, is associated with cognitive enhancement, With rapid learning, with robust emotional resilience, and protection against anxiety, stress, and depression, as well as heightened immunity. So, the rate of neurogenesis is probably the most important biomarker for brain health that most people have never heard of. And it turns out we can increase our rate of neurogenesis by at least five times probably even well beyond that with dramatic improvements in our life in the quality of our brain and again the quality of our consciousness on every level body heart mind spirit so this is a holistic approach to brain health right body heart mind spirit that's a long answer to your question Okay.
3: Well, I noticed that in the book you have a section uh, talking about the um, different foods for uh, brain health and some of the best foods and some of the worst foods so uh, why don't you give us a, a list of the good foods and some of the list of the bad foods for our our brain
4: okay, good, yeah, so this is a two pronged strategy um, it's helpful to stop doing or reduce. Those things that are neurotoxic and which hurt our brain, but we also want to do in a positive sense and eat those foods and do those activities that are neurohealthy and increase our rate of neurogenesis. Yeah, so it, it's both together. So it turns out we live in a very neurotoxic environment. Just about everybody has a brain that is operating well below capacity. And a big part of this is the foods we eat. So there's a chapter on body, there's a chapter on heart, there's a chapter on mind, there's a chapter on spirit, but there's a whole chapter just devoted to diet because this is hugely important. So if we want to build a high-end house, we use high-quality materials. We don't use rotting wood or decaying wood. We use high-quality lumber. And it's the same with the brain. To build a high-quality brain, we need to eat uh, neuro-healthy foods. So the book goes into about 30 or 40 different nutrients that stimulate our rate of neurogenesis. And I'll talk about a few of those in a minute. But as a kind of just overview of the whole thing what we need to be doing is supplying our brain with a lot of good basic building materials which translates into good healthy fats and not eating unhealthy bad fats and also eating much less sugar and carbohydrates than we do now. So it turns out that about two-thirds of the brain is made up of fat. And so we need to have a lot of high-quality fat in order to make our brain as as good as possible. So of that two-thirds fat, one-third of it is DHA. Now, DHA is one of the three omega-3 fatty acids that we get from fish oil and and some other things too but most people get it through eating fish or eating fish oil so omega-3 consists of ALA EPA and DHA those are the three omega-3 fatty acids ALA EPA and DHA and of those DHA is the one that is most important so a third of the brain's fat is made up of this DHA so we want to have a diet that is high in DHA high in other good healthy fats and very low in unhealthy bad fats now what's an unhealthy bad fat that is in essence An oxidized fat and an oxidized fat is a fat that has been overheated or has been um, been exposed to oxygen and and become rancid so cooking in vegetable oil produces oxidized fats you know the government dietary guidelines for I don't know 30 40 years now have been saying cook in vegetable oil. That's best for your heart. Well, it turns out that's the exact wrong advice and current nutritional science is finally discovering this. It turns out that cooking with vegetable oil, um, any vegetable oil, soybean oil, cottonseed oil, corn oil, um, even olive oil is not great to cook with. Um, What it does is it It oxidizes at a very low temperature and it oxidizes the fats in the food that it cooks. And when we ingest that, when we eat it, when those oxidized fats get into our bloodstream, what they do is they oxidize the cholesterol in our bloodstream. And oxidized cholesterol is what produces heart disease, atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries, it slows down our rate of neurogenesis, and it produces inflammation and Inflammation is known as the silent killer it's It's one of the main causes of heart disease it's one of the main causes of many different chronic diseases and is implicated in everything from heart disease to um um, metabolic disorders, um, to arthritis, to many other things. So we do not want to have an inflammatory diet. We want to have an anti-inflammatory diet. And so <clears throat> the other thing that inflammation does is it chews up the inside of our blood vessels. And so it's bad for the heart and it's bad for the brain. So instead of cooking with the vegetable oil, what we want to cook with are saturated fats because those we can cook with at high temperature and they're fine. So saturated fats would be things like coconut oil or cooking with butter or cooking with ghee, clarified butter, or cooking even with lard or tallow. These things that our parents and parents' parents cooked with are much better for the brain and for our heart than cooking with vegetable oil. Um, Another um, bad way to cook is through deep frying or through frying at high temperatures. So they did this one experiment where they looked at people who ate one to three portions of, of fish every week. And they discovered that they had 16% more gray matter, they had 16% more neurons in that part of the brain that is responsible for higher brain functions. Unless they ate fried fish, in which case there was no difference between them and the control group. So, frying fish, and I hate to say this because I used to love fish and chips. I confess, I still love it probably, but I don't let myself eat it anymore. Frying foods and frying fish, just not good for the brain. We want to cook at low temperatures, and we want to eat a lot of good healthy fats. So what are healthy fats? Healthy fats are things like avocados, nuts, um, coconut oil. Um, grass-fed beef. Grass-fed beef is one of the best things we can eat. Most commercial beef, however, is not so good for the brain. So there's a ratio between omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. And for almost all of human history, meaning the last several hundred thousand years, that ratio has been about one-to-one one, or maybe one-to-two omega-3 to omega-6. Now, omega-3 is hugely important for the brain. We talked about that DHA, that that part of it. Omega-6 is also important, but it's an inflammatory molecule. And so we don't want too much of it. We need just enough to mount a healthy inflammatory response meaning if there's an infection of some sort, the body needs a temporary inflammatory response to heal the infection. So we need a certain amount of omega-6, but we need it in this good ratio of 1 to 1 or 1 to 2. The modern diet consists of a ratio of more like 1 to 20 or 1 to 30 or 1 to 50 even, which is terrible for the brain and terrible for our level of inflammation in our bodies. So most commercial beef has a, a, a ratio of about one to five, whereas grass-fed beef has a ratio of one to 1.6. It's, it's ideal. It's perfect. So grass-fed beef is great. Um, also, fish is great. Um, We want fish that is probably lower in the food chain because mercury concentrates in fish the higher you go up the food chain. So eating swordfish or even most tuna, um, not a good idea. You're getting a big dose of mercury there. And mercury, it turns out, is one of the most potent neurotoxins ever discovered. Um, It's probably the second most neurotoxic element that there is outside of plutonium. Um, So we don't want uh, mercury. We want to eat fish that are lower in the food chain and which are wild caught. Most commercial fish that are farmed have a lot of other contaminants. They have much more mercury, PCBs, antibiotics, other things which we don't need. So we want wild-caught fish. So that's the sort of thing we want. We also want pastured eggs. Um, Those also have a good omega-3, omega-6 ratio, as opposed to most commercial eggs, where the ratio isn't so great. Um, Pastured chicken, um, pastured dairy of all kinds, So grass-fed cows that produce good organic cheeses and whole milk yogurts, these are good fats for the brain. Um, So that's, that's a quick overview, at least of the fat side of it.
3: Let me ask you sugar- about the blueberries, because you really wrote sure. something very interesting about blueberries. Tell us what you know about blueberries. I was very interested in that.
4: Yeah, well, blueberries are one of the very best things you can eat for your brain. Blueberries are like miracle grow for the brain. Um, <laughs> they, they increase your rate of neurogenesis. They are antioxidant. They are anti-inflammatory and it looks like they even increase working memory, which is one of the most difficult cognitive functions to increase. Um, blueberries are fantastic, and there's two ways you can eat them. If you eat them just raw or frozen, that's great. Just a regular cup a day is is fantastic for your brain. Um, but you can also get them as an extract, like in capsules. And they've done further research. You know, most of the animal experiments that they've done with blueberries, they've done with extracts and found that they work just as well as regular blueberries. But then they looked at people who did either extracts or who ate raw blueberries or frozen blueberries. And they discovered that both had equally good brain health effects, both equally strong neurogenesis-enhancing effects, However, those people that ate the extracts, the blueberry extracts and capsules, had a better response in terms of glucose metabolism, in ter- terms of their blood sugar levels. That because when you eat the fresh blueberry, you're also getting some sugar. And sugar is another thing that really decreases our rate of neurogenesis and is... Bad for the brain is over the long run is not good for the brain. Um, but blueberries are one of the very best things you can do. And the other thing about eating the extract is that you can eat it any time of year. It never goes out of season. You can always buy the extract. But blueberries are only available certain times a year in, in most places anyway.
1: So, um,
4: if I can, okay, no, go ahead. Not- well, I just one other thing about sugar, um, and this is this is really important, that it turns out that a high-sugar diet will decrease your rate of neurogenesis by half. Wow. It'll, it'll cut the rate of new brain cells being formed in half. That's just astonishing. So when you think about the average diet of the average American school child, they start out the day with what sugar frosted flakes, a glass of orange juice. I mean it's all sugar and bad fat, bad, unhealthy fat. You can't grow a good brain that way that's that's got to be just damaging the brains of our younger generation here. so the other thing with um sugar and the high carbohydrate diet again, the government guidelines have been saying most of our calories should be from carbohydrates and very little should be from fat and particularly a very small amount from saturated fat. And up until recently, they never distinguished between oxidized fat and non-oxidized fat. And that's this revolution now in nutrition science, that they are finally making this differentiation between oxidized fats which are really bad for us on many levels and certainly bad for the brain, and oxidized fats, which are good for us, which are healthy, which we need lots of. And so we've been told since fat was the bad guy for so many years and still is in many quarters to make up for those calories by eating carbohydrates, sugar, and complex carbohydrates. But all carbohydrates eventually get converted into sugar. And over time, this produces insulin resistance. So insulin resistance occurs when we have a lot of carbohydrate in our diet, and eventually the body just gets flooded with all this sugar. The bloodstream gets flooded with it, and the cells begin to make fewer insulin receptors when the cells begin to make fewer insulin receptors we get insulin resistance and so we get higher levels of insulin in the bloodstream we get higher levels of sugar or glucose in the bloodstream and both of these are very damaging to cells throughout the entire body to all systems of the body but particularly damaging to the brain So it's very interesting. You can look at a chart of somebody's blood sugar levels and as they go higher, their rate of cognitive decline also goes higher. It's like you can track cognitive decline and the blood sugar level just about perfectly. And it's now estimated that about 80% of Americans have some degree of insulin resistance. That means most all of us, they're seeing this even in childhood now, which is astonishing. They never saw this before. The average American now eats 17 teaspoons of sugar a day. Wow. Wow, yeah. It's amazing. That's a lot of sugar. Plus, high carbohydrate, which gets converted to sugar, our body gets overwhelmed. We were never... um, We never evolved to eat this much sugar. We evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to eat mostly fats, some protein, and a little bit of carbohydrate that was available, like a few berries at the end of summer to put on some fat to keep us through the winter. We never evolved to have constant access, 24-7, to all of this food and to all of this Sugar and sweets and carbohydrates, and it 's producing this epidemic of obesity and heart disease and many people are seeing this as tied into the alzheimer 's epidemic as well um, Alzheimer's is now being seen by many people as type three diabetes that involves a malfunction or disordering of glucose metabolism so this all begins to tie together that the way we're eating is making us stupider it's decreasing our rate of neurogenesis and um again we all stumbled into this innocently it was, it was like nobody's to blame here we never knew this until just the last few years this stuff is starting to come out um So eating a brain-healthy diet means low carbohydrate, high good healthy fats, and a moderate amount of protein. And along with other things that are mentioned in the books, again, 30 or 40 increase our rate of neurogenesis. Blueberries is one of the all-stars. And omega-3 fatty acids are another one of these all-stars. Our rate of neurogenesis seems to go up by about 40% when we start supplementing with omega-3 fatty acids. And, you know, most people will probably need to supplement with a capsule of some form. Some people can do it through just eating a lot of fish, but most people will need to do a capsule. And most people can do like 3, 4, 5 grams a day um, that the brain really just soaks this stuff up. And if you do it through a capsule, what you want is a brand that has a high amount of DHA in it and which is molecularly distilled. Again, we want it to be molecularly distilled because that will take out the mercury. There won't be any mercury contamination to it. Otherwise, if it's not molecularly molecularly distilled, we're likely to get a good dose of mercury, which, again, is very neurotoxic.
3: How how will we know if it's been that way? How will we know?
4: Um, It'll say so on the label. So check the label. If it doesn't say molecularly distilled, it's not. If it is molecularly distilled, it will say so on the label. And then also look at the DHA content. Some omega-3 supplements have very small amounts of DHA, What you want is one that has a high amount of DHA. And, you know, some people are vegetarians and won't want to do fish oil. And it's been said, well, they just need to do flax oil or they need to do chia seed oil, chia seed oil. Well, it turns out that's not right. (laughs) It turns out that flax oil and chia seed oil what those are, are a form of omega-3 called ALA, right? That's, that's this one form. And the body will convert ALA into DHA, but it does so extremely inefficiently. Something like 5 or 7% in healthy 18-year-olds is converted to DHA. And that rate goes down as we get over 30. It falls off very rapidly. So in studies that they've done trying to look at, well, how do we increase brain levels of DHA and blood levels of DHA, they found that supplementing with flax oil or cheese seed oil were not successful. They didn't raise the body's um, level of DHA. However, there's a new vegetarian form out which is derived from algae, and this algae form contains a lot of EPA, right? We talked about these three kinds of omega-3, ALA, EPA, and DHA. So the algae form of supplementation has a high amount of EPA, and EPA converts pretty readily by the body into DHA. So they looked at people who did this kind of a supplement, derived from algae, and they found that, yes, through that You can actually increase DHA levels. If you're vegan or if you're vegetarian and don't want to do fish oil, you can do an algae form of omega 3 to increase your DHA levels in your brain. You know, there was this one other interesting experiment. They fed monkeys, two groups of monkeys. One they fed a low omega 3 diet, and the other one they fed a high omega-3 diet and then they looked at their brains afterwards and the group of monkeys that had been on the low omega-3 diet had very simple undifferentiated brains but the monkeys on the high omega-3 diet had very complex richly differentiated brains almost like human beings you know when it comes to the brain Complexity is good. We want to see complexity. And DHA and omega-3s are hugely important in the brain's growth and complexification. So we want a good amount of that in our diet.
3: You know, I noticed from your list here that you have something called pepperine found in pepper, I, I'd never heard of that before. How, how do you get that product, and what kind of pepper?
4: Yeah, it's it's piperine, and it's actually an extract of black pepper. Okay. And and that also is um is a stimulant for neurogenesis, and it's extremely cheap. It's very cheap, and it does a number of things. One is it. <clears throat> It stimulates the rate of neurogenesis, makes it go faster, higher. It also increases our absorption of turmeric. Notice that another one of those um, nutrients is turmeric. It's yeah. the spice that's in curry spice. It makes it yellow. And the most active ingredient is called curcumin. So turmeric is another one of these all-stars for the brain. It Um, it reduces inflammation, it is antioxidant, Um, it is being used in arthritis treatment, it's being used for joint pain, it also is hugely helpful for increasing our rate of neurogenesis. However, it turns out that we absorb very little of what we ingest of turmeric. The body absorbs a very small percentage of it. However, if you take it with piperine, the absorption levels go up by five times.
1: Wow.
4: So there are many supplements now that um, include piperine and curcumin or turmeric together because it gives this extra capacity to be absorbed by the Body. It makes it much more bioavailable. The other way you can make it bioavailable is by taking it with phospholipids like phosphatidylcholine, for example, lecithin. Phosphatidylcholine is also very high in eggs. So if you do your turmeric with eggs, which is a great breakfast, um, you'll be increasing the rate of absorption. And the other way is to micronize it to make really tiny particles. So different supplement providers use different strategies to make turmeric and curcumin more absorbable. Either they micronize it, they put it together with phospholipids, or they put it together with piperine. But you can also get it yourself for cheaper than all of that and then just add piperine in yourself for much cheaper or phospholipids, say, with an egg.
3: So do you have certain uh, products that you like to talk about? I'm sure you've investigated a lot of brain food um, capsules that are out there at the health food store. Are are there some that you really want to share with with our audience?
4: Um, Well, I know that there are two very good forms of omega-3s. Nordic Naturals makes a good kind of a high DHA form that is molecularly distilled. And also the Life Extension Foundation.
3: Say that that again. Nordic what? Nordic?
4: Nordic Naturals.
3: Nordic Naturals, okay. What's the other one?
4: It's Life Extension Foundation.
3: Life Extension Foundation, okay.
4: Yeah. And they also have a good, I think they call it super omega-3. They have a very good high DHA level, and it's also molecularly distilled. Um, I don't have any economic ties to any supplement providers, by the way, just full disclosure here. Um, but I know that those are two good ones. I know there's also a New Zealand company, whose name I forget right now, that also has a high-quality, high-DHA, molecularly distilled uh, omega-3. There's probably others out there, but those are three that I'm aware of
3: anyway. What do you know about ginkgo biloba?
4: Oh, ginkgo biloba, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. That also is a good brain stimulant. Um, It increases the blood supply to our brain, and it also appears to increase our rate of neurogenesis as well.
3: I've been taking that off and on for some time, and and then recently I got onto something called grapeseed extract. What do you know about it?
4: That also is good. It's also an anti-inflammatory, an antioxidant, and it also um, increases our rate of neurogenesis. Um, Can you
3: talk a little bit about sleep? Because I get a lot of clients that are having trouble sleeping, and uh, I think that a lot of sleep deprivation is happening because of cell phone towers and technology and and stress, of course. But I'd like to hear your take on that.
4: Yeah, you're raising a a really important issue in terms of brain health. Sleep is one of the best things we can do for our brain. Um, I think most of us have underestimated the importance of sleep for most of our lives. Um, And in the last few years, it's become clear that sleep has a huge impact on our health, on our cognitive function, as well as on our rate of neurogenesis. So, when we don't get enough sleep, a number of things happen in the brain and in the body. For one thing, when we don't get enough sleep and by not enough sleep, what I mean is most people need seven or eight hours a night. Some people can get by on six, but almost nobody can get by on less than six. I mean, you get by, but you're not really thriving um, you can there are measurable cognitive deficits after a single night of not getting enough sleep. Um, It turns out also that our immunity goes way down when we don't sleep. The immune system um, becomes much less efficient. We make less melatonin and melatonin is one of the important drivers of immunity. And not getting enough sleep and even being on like a night shift is now considered a carcinogen it's it's a health risk to not get enough sleep well in the brain other things also happen during sleep so when we when we're sleeping we are processing the information during the day so it gets transferred into long-term memory and also the brain begins to clean itself when we sleep. So this was a mystery up until about one year ago. This is a very recent discovery. They never used to know how the brain cleaned itself, how it, how the it removed the toxins that were formed from just its daily functioning. Right, the body has the lymph system, the lymphatic system, which goes and cleans out the toxins that accumulate during the day, but that doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And so they always wondered, well, what happens in the brain? How does the brain clean itself? You know, it's like an aquarium. You, You need to have a filter. You need to have some way of cleaning out the junk that accumulates, the toxins that accumulate. Well, last year they discovered a new system which they called the glymphatic system after the glial cells that do a lot of the house cleaning tasks in the brain. The glial cells prune unused or underused connections and neurons. Um, they have many functions of which housekeeping is one. Well, it turns out when we sleep, our neurons actually shrink. They shrink by about a third or up to a half, some even more than that. And cerebrospinal fluid flows throughout the brain. And the glial cells go and clean the brain. So it's like the brain gets this shower or this bath when we're sleeping. And much of this happens in the last few hours of sleep. So you've probably had that experience of only getting maybe three or four hours of sleep and you wake up and you, know, you take a shower and you get into the day and you still feel like you, know, you still haven't had a shower. It's like there's this kind of yucky feeling in your body. Your skin is clean, but that yucky feeling is from your brain. The brain toxins have not been cleaned out. So what this lymphatic system does when we're asleep, it bathes the brain... And it particularly, the glial cells particularly focus on getting rid of this amyloid beta. Now, amyloid beta plaque is what accumulates in Alzheimer's disease. And so when we don't get enough sleep, we are starting to accumulate more amyloid beta. That's not something we want to accumulate, we want to get rid of that as much as we can, as fast as we can.
3: Is there something you can take to, to make that work faster, to clean to, to clean that off?
4: There isn't that we know of, other than a good night's sleep, meaning seven or eight hours for most people.
3: Well, I know um, at the University of Oklahoma Medical, they came up with something saying that there was a substance in okra that, that they were uh, working with that looked like it was cleaning the brains of Alzheimer's patients.
4: Ah, interesting. Um <clears throat> Yeah, I don't know anything about that, but um, I do know that thus far, although there's been um, interesting research on a few drugs that have worked to rid the body of amyloid beta once a person has Alzheimer's, it actually has not reversed the course of the disease. Um, So clearly it's involved with Alzheimer's. We're not quite sure how. We don't want it to accumulate in our brains, but once it's there... Um, getting rid of it, it, it's unclear what impact that's going to have. What we want to do is stop it from forming in the first place. And so getting good night's sleep is hugely important. And you're right. One of the big things that interferes with that is all of this technology. Um, People should not be sleeping anywhere near their cell phones or electromagnetic fields of different kinds. They should sleeping in a dark room if you have to have a clock it's good to have like one that has um, red red or amber Um, and this is beginning more and more publicity also computer screens um, doing those late at night exposes our eyes and our brain to the blue um, part of the spectrum And what that does is it stops the brain's production of melatonin, which is what we need for brain health and to go to sleep. So it's suggested that people not use the computer or their iPad an hour or two before sleep or that they get that amber protection on their computer or some people even doing like amber lights or amber sunglasses that when you expose yourself to the blue range of the spectrum, that it wakes you up and it becomes harder to fall asleep then. And that that's one of the things that's also interfering with our sleep.
3: I noticed you talk about melatonin being produced in the colon. I, I did. That was kind of startling to me. I, I, I didn't know that that happened.
4: Yeah, it's produced in the brain. Um
3: but it and comes from the colon the, that you the, said, the col- said in your the book that, produce, that yeah. uh, melatonin are um, uh, somehow... Serotonin-melatonin balance comes from proper use of the colon.
4: Yes, the colon produces more neurotransmitters than the brain, it turns out. You know, we have this whole other brain, our enteric nervous system in our gut. Our gut is filled with neurons, and our gut produces... great deal of neurotransmitters including serotonin yeah it's one of the it's the major place where the body produces serotonin and um, that then has an effect on the vagus nerve and goes back up to the brain yes
3: tell us what you feel about prayer and meditation with the brain
4: now this is a very interesting area of research so As I mentioned before, many researchers were not interested in looking at spiritual practice or spirituality in any form. And so when they finally did, they were really surprised at what they found when they looked at different neuroimaging instruments when people were meditating or praying. Because they didn't expect to see much, right? Because from the outside, it looks like nothing's happening. The person's just sitting there. But, of course, if you meditate or you pray, you know that actually a great deal is happening, that it's a very dynamic state. And it turns out that the brain imaging studies validate that, that, yes, when we are meditating, a great deal is happening in the body and the brain. So it turns out that the part of the brain where neurogenesis occurs it is called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is this crescent moon shaped structure. There's actually one on each side of our brain. We actually have two hippocampi, although usually it's referred to in the singular. So the hippocampus, again, it's this crescent moon shaped structure that so one part of it is very involved in somatic memory and somatic learning, where our body is in space, it's connected to the body. And this same end of the hippocampus is involved in processing new memories. So this is hugely important. So it doesn't store memories, but it processes memories which means it allows new memories to form. So in Alzheimer's, the brain, the hippocampus part of the brain is massively attacked. And that's why in Alzheimer's, the person can't form new memories very well. And when memory goes, everything else goes. Memory is like the linchpin for the self. So so many of our higher Brain functions in the prefrontal cortex and the neocortex arise from the brain's capacity to make new memories. So working memory, executive function — most of most functions of the self. the sense of being a self is deeply, intimately, profoundly related to memory. And when memory begins to go, it's like it pulls the rug out from the sense of self. And we see this in Alzheimer's patients, where their very sense of self just begins to slip away. It's really quite tragic. So the the hippocampus, it's involved in um, the body. It's involved in cognition and memory, and the other end of it, the other end of the hippocampus, is involved in emotion regulation, particularly the regulation of anxiety and depression. Now, certain things increase our rate of neurogenesis at one end of the hippocampus or the other, and this is why we need the kind of holistic approach that the book talks about, right? This book, it's a holistic approach, body, heart, mind, spirit, because all of these work together synergistically, whereas if we just do one thing, it doesn't necessarily make that big a difference. So let me give an example. In meditation, when we meditate, there are actually two forms of spiritual practice that have been shown to have a a significant effect on the hippocampus and, it seems, um, the rate of neurogenesis. And one of these forms of spiritual practice is mindfulness meditation. Now, there are many different kinds of mindfulness meditation, but what they all try to bring about is bringing us into the present moment, into the here and now. So some types of meditation practice, mindfulness meditation practice, involve focusing on the breath, on the sensation of the breath coming into the body, out of the body, the pause between breaths, and in and out. And you simply disregard other thoughts, other feelings, other body sensations, and just keep coming back to the breath. And slowly your your mind settles down, and you come into the now more and more. In other mindfulness meditation practices, there's no particular focus of attention. You simply are aware of whatever arises in consciousness, and you simply observe this arising and passing away. No judgment, um, no censoring, no justification. You simply become aware of sensations, of feelings, of thoughts and images, and you just watch the whole show go by. That also brings us into the here and now. It turns out these different forms of mindfulness meditation practice increase the rate of neurogenesis along the entire axis. Um, The other form of spiritual practice, which has a really robust effect on the brain, is devotional prayer um, and compassion practices. Essentially, heart-opening practices, practices of love, devotion, bhakti, surrender to the divine. These also have a profound effect on the entire length of the hippocampus. And so there we see this cortical thickening. We see this robust neurogenesis effect, it seems like, from um, the brains of people who are doing spiritual practice. And it turns out you don't need to do it for very long to see a measurable effect. You know, they thought, well, maybe you need to be a monk and do this for your whole lifetime. Well, it's not the case. They took people who hadn't been meditating and they had them do mindfulness practice for 20 to 30 minutes in the morning and in the evening. And within eight weeks, they were able to um, see brain changes in their hippocampus Um, through brain imaging studies. And that just blew away the researchers. They had no idea that there would be changes that quickly in the brain. Do you
3: think that fasting for two or three days at a time uh, helps the brain?
4: Yes, it looks like fasting in all different forms is good for the brain. Um, So one way is to just not eat at all for a while. Most people can't do that. Um, A way that most people can do, however, and which is um, very helpful, is to make sure there's at least 12 or even better, 14 or 15 hours between dinner and breakfast. So this is very interesting research that's also come out, that how often we eat has a big impact on brain health, on glucose metabolism, in fact, on many different functions of the body. When we fast, the body begins to repair itself. Again, as we evolved, the body evolved to go periods of time without food. And when it was without food, it kind of shuts down certain systems, but it also then begins to repair the body. So, um... One thing it does is it makes the body more sensitive to glucose and um, it also becomes, it turns out, it's hard to lose weight if you're eating all the time. You know, this is another part of the dietary advice that's been pretty well debunked at this point. This idea that we should eat three meals a day, we should have snacks, we should be eating all the time, it turns out that's not a good idea. That you need to have breaks from eating and metabolizing and let your body just um, use the fat stores that are there to run it rather than just always burning sugar all the time. So they did this one experiment with rats and they've now done it with humans also where they gave them um, extra calories throughout the day and I mean a significant number And they had one set of rats eating throughout the entire day whenever they wanted. They had another set of rats that they didn't let them eat for 12 hours, but then they let them eat the other 12 hours. And the rats that could eat all the time gained a ton of weight, and the rats that had a 12-hour window of not eating didn't gain weight, even though they were eating more calories than they normally did. And it turns out they've now duplicated that with human beings. But if you want to lose weight, then make sure that it's at least 12, and even better, 14 or 15 hours between your dinner and your breakfast. And that has a big impact. Um, Again, it increases your rate of neurogenesis when you do a little bit of fasting like that, called intermittent fasting. And it also is good for weight and for glucose metabolism.
3: I have a question for you. I hear about people that uh, have brain traumas and they'll induce a coma and the person will lay there for several days without food. So this is probably a good thing, right? No food, let the brain... Yes,
4: that's right, that's right. Although when there's an injury, again, what we want to do is supply the brain with a lot of good healthy fats, particularly DHA. And so, although I've only read anecdotal reports of this, I've heard about people with brain injuries doing large amounts of DHA, like 20 grams a day for a few weeks, and recovering very quickly from very severe brain injuries. Um, But a lot more long-term studies need to be done with this.
3: Yeah, wow. Well, I'll tell you this book is just full of information and I'm really wanting our starseed audience to uh to pick it up and to read it because it just may save your life and it may save your it save your 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 brain. I mean right. what can we do here without a brain? So <laughs> So you've yeah, been a wonderful right. guest tonight, and I'd like to uh, share this now with Arielle. She is my co-host, and she has the switchboard. And there may be some people that want to come on and ask you a couple of questions. Are you up for that? Sure. Okay. So okay, but been very wonderful talking to you, and I want to talk to you later by phone about some of the things that I, I want to discuss with you about lightning strikes. Okay.
1: <laughs> sure.
3: Happy to. Okay. So back to you, Ariel.
4: Okay. Well.
0: <laughs> Doctor, this has been just fascinating, and I, I'm thinking, um, of course, in, in my own experience, it's like um, because I've I've tried to it's like oh you have to eat, you know, four or five times a day, and it's and I just yeah. can't do it. You know, <laughs> I was yeah, like oh good, good. I'm <laughs> off the hook. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and 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 while you were talking, I went and. Got my my um, uh, my bottle of krill oil because I was like, oh no, I have mm. to make sure that there is no mercury in that, and thankfully it's clear of mercury and it's got the DHA and and uh, um, I think that there's just a wealth of information even beyond. I know that you've just scratched the surface um, the, of what's in your book, so I truly encourage everyone who's listening and who will listen um, later in the archives to pick up a copy of this book because uh like you said if if you don't have a brain you just can't get on with uh your purpose in life uh, everything everything the way your body functions it really is the um well, it's the driver I guess of the of the vehicle of the body
4: That's right. So, That's
0: right. Uh, just before we get um further into uh, this discussion. If anyone would like to um, ask a question of Dr. Courtright, please, if you're already on the switchboard, just press one, so that we know you want to come on the air with a question. And if you're not on the switchboard, if you're listening on your computer, then um, you'll have to dial nine one seven eight eight nine eight two nine two, and then press one when you get in. And we do have a little bit of time left for questions, so. Uh, If you do, please um, get on the switchboard here. But you were about to say something.
4: Yeah, I wanted to say one other thing about Alzheimer's disease. Um, And, you know, this is a huge problem. Um, Right now, if you go on the website for the Alzheimer's Association, it says that one in three seniors currently dies either with Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. And within a few years, if present trend lines continue, 50% of people who reach the age of 85 will have Alzheimer's. And since most of us are expected to live to be 85, that's pretty scary. That gives us a 50-50 chance of developing Alzheimer's. So this is a huge problem, and it's going to get more huge. Um, And as you're saying, what's the point of living longer if we don't have our brain or don't have our mind to appreciate it. So Alzheimer's begins decades before symptoms actually appear. So now is the time to really begin. And currently, also, if you go on the Alzheimer's Association website, it will say, this is the only major disease for which there is no medication. There is no cure There is no prevention. There is no treatment. Zero. And we have some things which will help the symptoms for a few months. That's all. And the pharmaceutical companies have spent literally billions of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of clinical trials trying to come up with a drug that would have some effect on Alzheimer's disease. And thus far, it has been a complete failure. They have come up with nothing, zero. Every clinical trial has been a failure. Now, it's interesting because holistic research doesn't happen too much because most of the research is done by pharmaceutical companies or by academic researchers who are looking to discover the next new drug that they can make a fortune on. That's fine that they have the right to do that. But holistic research doesn't get done partly because most all the treatments are free or readily available. There isn't one drug that you can patent with a holistic treatment. Right. But there are a few places doing holistic treatment. And one of them is here in California called the Buck Institute on Aging. And they came out with a study Um, late last year, actually just before my book was published, that essentially what they did was a kind of very simplified version of what is in the book. They did a holistic treatment for people who had experienced cognitive decline, meaning that they had memory loss that was measurable, in fact, so severe for some that they had to stop working. And doing the kind of, again, simplified version of a holistic treatment that's in the book, Body, Heart, Mind, Spirit, they found that they were were able to reverse the cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's. And that people who had had to stop working regained their memory and were able to go back to work for the two years that they followed them in this study. Wow. And then just a few... Isn't that astonishing? Yeah, it's like the first glimmer of hope for this. And then a few months ago, another study came out from Finland, which was the first randomized controlled study of people who were at risk of cognitive decline. And they also did a very simplified version of this holistic treatment. And they found that that the people who were at risk for cognitive decline did not develop it for the two years that they followed them. So right now, it appears that the only hope for Alzheimer's is some kind of holistic prevention or treatment. So something, again, that involves every level of our being, our physical being, our emotional being, our mental intellectual being, and our spiritual being, that all of these together work synergistically for brain health and to increase our rate of neurogenesis. So this, I think, is it's huge news for Alzheimer's and, and to finally have some hope here and also to realize that since symptoms begin, de- I mean, since the disease begins decades before the symptoms appear, that if you're in your 20s or 30s, now's the time to start. And if you're older, now is definitely the time to start.
0: Right, right. And everything that you've been saying um, this evening and I'm thinking about the as you said an epidemic not only alzheimer's but a l s um other um neurodegenerative diseases um yeah. m um, s and i've I've read some reports um about the roles of mercury and aluminum, and you think about how much aluminum exposure we have you know yeah. drinking eating out of aluminum cans cooking with aluminum cookware, antiperspirant, you're putting, giving your daily dose of aluminum, and that goes right to your brain, doesn't it?
4: That's right, and vaccines also. They are a preservative in vaccines as well, yes.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and uh, have you done or heard anything um, concerning fluoride and its effect
4: on the brain? Um, I haven't. I've heard some pretty negative reports about um, actually I did read one report that talked about that there were actually a reduction in IQ in children that were exposed to fluoride Um, but I haven't read much so I I can't comment on that too much and I don't know its effects on neurogenesis but
3: um, well it can't be good
4: (laughs) that's right, there is so much that is neurotoxic in our environment that we just are now discovering yes
0: yeah. What um ibuprofen? Isn't that a huge neurotoxin?
4: Um, I don't know. You know, it's an anti inflammatory, so that way it's good, but to do it regularly, it also um it decreases prostaglandins in your stomach and so it can lead to stomach ulcers. Um there's problems with it using it frequently. Um you want to use other kinds of anti-inflammatories than ibuprofen. It's something to be used just in, like, extreme cases, I think. Of, um,
0: pain or well, there, I, I think, I mean, everybody knows someone who's, whose parent has Alzheimer's or some some kind of dementia. Yeah. Everybody knows somebody that's got diabetes. And it's, I'm, I swear it is connected to our food source, our food supply in this country, it's poison. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, I was that, really,
0: I was, I was really glad to hear about the good things that that you were offering um, to help offset that and to educate people because they just don't, you know, they believe what they see on TV. Oh, this is good for you. Yeah. You know.
4: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, this, that's you know, right.
0: Just, Oh, well, you know, it's, it's 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 processed carbohydrates with just a touch of sugar. You know, well, how much of that do you eat?
4: Yes, yes. So
0: we were going. That's to right.
4: Say, well, just that. That's right. We're 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 trusting, and it also seemed like doctors and the government knew what they were talking about. And now to find out that actually the guidelines, the dietary guidelines, to reduce heart disease are actually part of what's responsible for this epidemic of heart disease and diabetes and obesity, it is extraordinary, right, that this whole 75% of American men are overweight or obese, and two-thirds of American women are overweight or obese. And it comes in large part due to this high-carbohydrate Low fat diet. And it seems it takes a while to really get that condition out of our heads, right? We think, oh my God, if I eat fat, I'm going to get fat. It turns out that's not true. That fat doesn't make you fat. What makes you fat is sugar and excess carbohydrate. And excess, it doesn't take much to have an excess of carbohydrate and to begin to become insulin resistant and then begin storing all this as that. And this has produced not only the obesity epidemic, but a heart disease epidemic. And it's clearly involved in this wave of Alzheimer's that's going to become a tsunami. Um, it's going to get more and more huge. Um, that seems right. really clear. Yeah.
0: Because the the, and, the food has changed. Um, I mean, people whose grandparents maybe are now in their 80s or 90s, they didn't start off with this terrible food that we have now. When you think about kids, yeah. that, that's all they've ever had was this terrible food. Right. What if it starts coming on sooner?
4: That's right. That That's a you know? good point. And, and, you know, there's been, in terms of children, there's in terms of childhood depression, there are eight times the rate of childhood depression now that there was in the 1950s. It's up by eight times. And with childhood anxiety disorders, those are up five to eight times. And that's not just because of better screening. Those are using the same standardized tests that were done in the 1950s. Plus, we have all these new things. Autism, ADHD, ADD, that hardly existed back then. Um, Why is this? Why is there this
1: huge,
4: I mean, this is like eight times, five to eight times increase is massive. I'm I'm quite convinced that to a large degree, this is because the brains that are being built are not that good because they are being built with faulty materials. And so there's a failure of emotion regulation because the brain itself is not um it doesn't have these healthy building blocks of a lot of good healthy fats and low carbohydrate.
0: Oh yeah, I mean <laughs> I'm I'm already getting outraged <laughs> because I, I I mean I think I've got I've got nieces and nephews and and i know that they are one with their cell phone they eat food out of a microwave um, Yeah. you know i mean they're just they're they're eating they're living in and on poison and yeah. Yeah. you know and this is the hope for the future and they're by the time they're 20 or 30 years old they're going to be fighting for their health and not working to you know clean up the planet so yeah
1: yeah
4: yeah and we're seeing this in college kids that they are less emotionally resilient than they were even ten or twenty years ago. Um, there is a five-fold increase in <clears throat> in colleges and universities of students going in for what just be considered life problems, but a five-fold increase in use of counseling centers and on universities and um, again rates of depression, rates of anxiety, sleep sleep disorders, and you're right also that cell phones are part of this because when we are always online, it's like it changes our nervous system. It becomes a kind of continual stress, and we didn't really get into stress. We didn't get into sort of the emotional dimension of all of this, <clears throat> but clearly one form of negative stress, is being always online, always um, available for the latest text message or email or Instagram or whatever it is. And um, there's two kinds of stress. There's good stress and there's bad stress. And good stress we need because it makes us stronger. So good stress is short-term stress or moderate stress. Like when we exercise, we stress our muscle. But then we stop and rest. The muscle, it um, breaks down. But then when we rest, it builds back up, and it builds back up stronger. So it's the same with stress. Short-term stress or moderate stress is good for us. It, It brings forth new capacities in the self. It's like we all need to be challenged. And when we're challenged... We reach inside and we develop, we grow. So a certain amount of stress is good. But that's not the stress that most people experience in their lives. These days what most people experience is chronic stress, which is bad stress. And in chronic stress, the, there is no break from it. It's continuous. So the stress hormones, the glucocorticoids, are always circulating. What that does is it makes it harder to sleep. And we've gone into some of the ways in which not enough sleep is really damaging for the body <clears throat> and for the rate of neurogenesis. And it also affects the body. So immunity goes way down. It's like when we're chronically stressed, we don't ever have a chance to have the body go back to a homeostatic balance to kind of reset itself. Mm-hmm. And so chronic, being online, being on the Internet, being on your cell phone, texting, always being in touch with people, it's its too much. Again, the brain wasn't designed for this. The body wasn't designed for this kind of stress. Um, it's the chronic stress that we have to Um, interrupt. We've got to get a break from it. And so that means also having periods of time that are offline where we just unplug and take a walk in nature or just talk with our friends without a cell phone that we're looking at. Um, There needs to be a break in which we can reset. And I find it interesting that like the children of some of the big um, Silicon Valley people, like Steve Jobs and Eric Schmidt of Google, <clears throat> they often have rules where they don't let their kids do, use their iPads during the week, and they have cell phone free zones during the day. And I think that is really smart. And most of most people are just caught up into this cell phone internet kind of it's like a trance right and it 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 takes some effort to really just sort of turn it off and wake up out of that trance
0: it's almost and it's an addiction
4: it is an addiction that's right you get addicted to that little dopamine squirt when you get a little thing <laughs> and you've gotten a text message and it can be hard when you first go offline when you turn it all off Initially, there's a kind of emptiness, a kind of withdrawal. But then as you stay with that, you begin to look at the trees and you begin to look at other people and you go, oh my God, there's a whole world out here. Mm
1: -hmm. But there
4: is a kind of withdrawal that can be hard and painful initially until you begin to trust it. that Okay, that's just letting go of my toxic addictions and it's going to be replaced with something better.
0: Absolutely. And when when it comes to that chronic stress, uh, I was kind of getting the feeling as you were talking that when your body is doing things to help you mitigate or deal with this stress, almost like a like a, a painkiller. After a while, um, it's not enough anymore, and you're losing ground <sighs> because, because like you're constantly. This much um, um, whatever counterbalance that the body puts out, but the stress is continual, and pretty soon that's not enough, and so there's a decline where it, you're, you're starting to down spiral, isn't it?
4: That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The just chronic stress it begins to just erode so many body systems. It, it, it degrades your body's capacity to cope. And then you begin to give out. And so immunity goes way down. So you begin to develop chronic diseases, more colds. It's linked to heart disease. It's linked to Alzheimer's. It's linked to just so many things. In fact, some people, in fact, the National Institute of Health is now saying 80% of all doctor visits are either stress-related or mind-body-related. Wow. Stress Stress is now considered the number one killer in America except it never appears on any death certificate. It's just that it's implicated in so many of the chronic diseases, cancer, autoimmune diseases, heart disease, you name it. Um, Mm. Stress is a culprit, yeah.
0: Gosh. You know, I I think of this from a a perspective off the planet, excuse me, because... Americans, from the view of, I mean, you you do a lot of traveling in 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 other countries in Europe, and uh-huh. they don't have, I don't think, the the stress levels. And here we are, the, like the most prosperous country, we have the most of everything, and so where does what is the stress? Is it is failure to be able to deal with day to day things? I mean. It, it's, it just kind of seems ironic to me that we should have eighty percent um, implications of stress in 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 death, yet it doesn't get any better than this you know, on the on the planet when it comes to a standard of living. So
1: that's
4: right. It, it, there is so much riches. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. It's very ironic that with all of this material and technological wealth, our Health is abysmal, and our brain health is going downhill faster than it needs to. Mm-hmm. Again, we all stumbled into this innocently; We didn't know. And a lot of this information is brand new. It's just coming out. How do we now educate ourselves so that we can begin to live a neuro-healthy lifestyle rather than this kind of neurotoxic lifestyle? that we've just kind of grown up in, in which the culture just promotes, again, without knowing it. Although, I I guess in some quarters it is known, and they're wanting to make a lot of money, and they continue even knowing that there's poor health consequences. But for the most part, most people, I think, simply don't know. And the very best thing is education and learning about Oh well, my god, I do have choices here. I don't have to just go along in this cultural trance. I can kind of wake up and make choices and develop in a healthy way rather than continuing along the lines of these toxic addictions.
0: Right. Well we have have a caller now, um, that's just come out of the screen room. So and we just have we just have time for this one. So I am going to bring Lynn online here in just a second. Hi, Lynn. You are on the air with Dr. Courtright.
5: Hi, Dr. Courtright. I I, I found this so interesting relative to stress and um, just was with some people that are in the medical field last evening talking about the Rosetta study that was done in the 1950s. Are you familiar with that study on heart disease? No. Well it it's it's one of the truly um it, it would be interesting when you talk about education. The Rosetta study was done in Rosetta, Pennsylvania, and the people from Rosetta, Italy had come and they created a community in Rosetta, Pennsylvania with uh, the yes, Catholic Church of
4: this. On uh-huh. one of the,
5: okay, yeah, okay. Well that's yes, the Rosetta yes. study and it completely debunked the years and years and years of the government study saying that heart disease was cholesterol and all of these things, these people ate ate with lard, as you were just saying they drank wine two meals a day they were obese by standards, and yet they died of nothing but natural causes um, uh Malcolm Gladwell has. Done an introduction to them in his book *The Outliers*. He tells the story of Rosetta, and um, the 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 study was done by Dr. Brune and Dr. Stuart Wolf with the um, Health Sciences Center in Bangor, Pennsylvania, and Rosetta, Pennsylvania, and literally, it it was all it's all of this disease was stress related, which was what Dr. Wolf talked about in the in the fifties in nineteen fifties He said once we get out of community and we lose that trust of that community and stress takes over. heart disease will go up in this community just like every other community if they don't have that that trust and that uh bonding of individuals and lifestyle.
4: Yes, yes, that makes perfect sense. That that's so right. That <clears throat> it's one of the again ironies of American culture that there is all this wealth, all this um this plenitude of, of so much, and there is a poverty of relationship. People feel more isolated than ever um teenagers are complaining about feeling um isolated and yet they're always connected with they're always texting they're always like the the quality of relationship has gone down with technology there's a way that it is um actually come in between people so that just having conversations with people it the quality of conversation gets eroded when you're always looking at your cell phone. So that's absolutely right. And and it's quite clear in primate studies as well that good bonds in a particular monkey troop um, work to help soothe stress. And with people also. We need a lot of good, loving, supportive relationships in our lives. And when we don't have that, It's terrible. In fact, people who are isolated, people who um, are lonely, have much greater risk for heart disease, for high blood pressure, um, for anxiety, for depression, much more so even than if they smoked. Um, Because the lack of relationship is in itself a kind of stress. That's absolutely right. Yes.
5: Well, I'm fascinated by your work and really look forward to uh, you getting this on an audio book. <laughs> and and so appreciate what you're the venture that you're taking because it, it it is so needed. And clearly, all of these diseases that are that are based around the Krebs cycle and and you know whether it's Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, we are destroying our most valuable Organ and that's the brain.
4: Yes, exactly right. Yes, and yes. no
5: one's paying any attention to it.
4: <laughs> hmm mm-hmm. That's right. These are all lifestyle diseases. These aren't intrinsic yes. being human. They're lifestyle diseases.
0: Well, yeah. well, well, that thank was you so much, Lynn, that you just just well, last night you. For talking with people about that study, and and um, so that's that's a real the synchronicity there. But thank you so much for calling in. Good to hear from you. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye then.
5: Bye. Wow.
0: Wow. That is just uh I hadn't heard about that before. But yes, um we only have a few minutes here so I just want to take a moment to um tell everybody again that you can get a copy of the NeuroGenesis Diet and Lifestyle, um, either um, it, on your website or I, I suppose it's on any place where you would order books as well as the um, the book website. So your website is Brant, B-R-A-N-T, Courtright, C-O-R-T-R-I-G-H-T dot com. And the book website is Gen- neurogenesisdiet.com and I so encourage everyone to pick up a copy of this book and especially share it you know with your um with your relatives that you care about and uh, Dr. Cortright I thank you so much for spending your your time and your wealth of knowledge with our audience
4: well thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure and and I thank you also for helping to spread the word about neurogenesis.
0: Well, it's something that is um unfortunately it's new. <laughs> you know, wish wish we'd known mm-hmm. about this for, for decades, but at least yeah. we know about it now. And there is something right. that we can do if we just um just wake up and take charge. You know, it's it's a yeah. preventable um problem
1: that's with, right. with with that's right. With, with, with
0: so, um Congratulations to you for stepping up and putting this book together, doing the research and and bringing this in a holistic approach, which I think is so important. And um just before we we sign off here, I'm going to bring Lavendar back on just to um to say goodnight. Lavendar, are you there?
3: I just just enjoyed this this conversation so much and I'm so glad our friend Lynn called in, because that's that's a really important story. I'd heard about that story before and I'd forgotten about it. But uh, I hope that you come back and, and be our guest again. We we have so much more to talk about with this book. Uh, we didn't even get into the sex life, so we got to do that <laughs> time. So. <Okay>. Great. Great.
4: <laughs> Sounds good.
3: Okay. Absolutely. Well, thank you
0: so much for joining us. And uh, we'd like to you're welcome. Um, I would like to thank everyone for listening. And as I said at the beginning of the show, we will um, be back um, October 27th, if memory serves, <laughs> and um, because we'll be in Arkansas for the next three Tuesdays. Um, yes, October 27th. Good girl. Okay. So uh, thanks again, Dr. Courtright. And to all of our listeners, take care of yourselves. And get a copy of this book. You need it. Okay. So, till next time. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.